Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, my guest Scott Samuelson didn't visit Rome until he was in his mid-30s. And since then, with COVID exceptions, he's gone to Rome every summer. These trips and his thoughtfulness at wonder at what he has seen there have resulted in a wonderful and idiosyncratic book. He describes it as an exploration of both the city and the visions of life inspired by it, an eclectic guide that blends history, art, literature, religion, and philosophy. My aim is to see how much our souls can be instructed, not only by thinkers like Cicero, Seneca, and Giordano Bruno, but also by sites like the Forum, the Villa Farnesina, and the Galleria Borghese. The result is Rome as a guide to the good life, a philosophical grand tour. Scott Samuelson is a professor at Kirkwood Community College in Grand Rapids, Iowa. He also works with the Catherine Project, brainchild of friend of the podcast Zena Hits, where experienced teachers engage great books with a small group of readers for free. For his work in bringing philosophy to the public, he won the 2015 Hyatt Prize in the Humanities. This is his third book. Scott Samuelson, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's my real pleasure to be on. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, you uh, come, you know, highly recommended by our mutual friend, Scott Newstock. I'll link to him in the show and Zena Hits. Yeah, Scott uh, seems to know every, everyone who matters. Well, uh, he, but he also knows me. That So there's <laughs> that, that's nice. As I said, this is, um, it's a miracle this book was published in 2023. Mm-hmm. It's so idiosyncratic. It's so different. And it, I said the University of Chicago Press, as, as I said to you, did you proud the illustrations that are included? It, would, it wouldn't be a book without illustrations. Um, and they put together a beautiful book. It's so profoundly curious and the result of someone of a seeing eye. It's a, really a pleasure to read. And it combines place and, I, and ideas in a way that you know, uh, it makes me a little jealous. I wish I could do that, or I, I would like to do that sometime. Uh, it's given me lots of thoughts uh, about books about much less interesting places like Philadelphia or Virginia. Um, uh, but it's it's just a it's a lovely book. Um, so, and this is a result of, I imagine, decades of, of of thinking about what you see. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for saying that. And I, I, I will say I really like how the book came out in terms of just the look and feel of it. I, uh, Several of the people at the University of Chicago Press said that this is the loveliest book they produced. Um, and yeah, I, I can't wait. I've only read the digital arc thus far, and I really am looking forward to seeing the, getting the hardcover, buying the hardcover. Yeah, it's 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 really it's it's got a good feel. The, the 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 colors, the font, everything turned out really beautifully. So I mean, I know that that can seem a little superficial, but it's it's nice oh. to have a book that is uh, a, a book a, is a, a thing. Nice it's a book is yeah. an object. Yeah, and the but, but I'm also I mean I I'm glad you bring out the idiosyncratic quality, which I take as a great compliment to the book. I mean, you know, it's meant to be you know a, a, an interesting read just on its own right, but it's also meant to be something that is has a kind of guidebook feel. And to me, a lot of the problems with guidebooks is that they can seem pretty cold. I mean, you know, they maybe have useful information, but they're they're not really the companionable 
guide that you that you sort of long for. And so, you know, my hope was to aspire to be that kind of idiosyncratic, companionable guide who kind of, you know, uh, draws your eyes to interesting things and gets you to think in, in different ways about uh, what's around you. And, and I mean, and the real hope is to 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 as as you kind of were alluding to to kind of do philosophy on site so to speak or to think about philosophy in relationship to actual sites because i do think when we travel even when we're dreaming of traveling or, or or reading a book about travel you know our our imaginations play with questions of the good life you know sort of like particularly when we think of a place like rome and so the idea is hmm, well what would it be like to kind of turn up that experience for people um, uh, and really kind of dig into the sites that that Rome has to offer and not just learn about them historically, though that's important too, but also to kind of say, hmm, what, you know, what can I, what can I sort of deeply take from these places? Well, before we get to describe the, the method of the book, let's show the idiosyncrasy and the method by, I think it's your first chapter, uh, yeah. which, of all places, begins in the Protestant seminary, but does not begin with the tomb of Keats or of Shelley, but of Rosa Bathurst, which had me uh, rushing to Professor Wikipedia uh, for the, the Bathurst background, which is fabulous and fantastic yeah. and needs to be a movie uh, or, a, or a historical, at least a, a really good historical novel. Um, yeah, well, that's, you know, I've had several people say to me after reading that, like, they're like, well, it's good that you wrote this book, but really you missed your chance. You should have written, a, a, you know, some miniseries for, for Netflix on the Bathurst. <laughs> yeah. So the, describe Rosa Bathurst's tomb, uh, because that's where I began to understand the power of images. There's a very simple, I guess, probably taken from an engraving, which has been water, there's some watercolor has been applied. And that's how the chapter begins. Uh, and then you go in this a very strange place to begin a book about Rome, Scott. Mm -hmm. But as you know, I love that the that showed me the audacity of it. Showed me what it, what kind of book this was going to be. Yeah, I mean, the so first of all, the Protestant cemetery, or it's also known as the non-Catholic cemetery, is Accurate. just a gorgeous spot in in Rome, and and it's just full of interesting graves and epitaphs in, in, in lots of different languages, a lot in English, but, you know, in Italian and Russian and Lithuanian and in any number of, of, of languages, because, I mean, these are people who, who um, you know, kind of met death on their journey, who, who, who you know, were just decided to go on various adventures that took them to Rome and, and fell in love with the place and died there. Um, and so it's a great spot just to begin with. And I love that idea of these people on journeys. And I think that's one of the strands of why I wanted to start the book there. But the fact of the matter is, is just that, so I, I always love going to there and just going around and looking at the tombstones and reading them and thinking about things. I like that in any cemetery, but like I said, the Protestant cemetery is kind of second to none for this. And I came across just completely by chance the tomb of Rosa Bathurst. Um, it's a relatively well-known tomb to the people in the know, but but it's not something like you say that people that your average tourist would go to the Protestant cemetery to see. And 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 I hadn't I wasn't going there to see it either. It just I and I read the the epitaph and I was just um I was just really, really moved by it. Um it was actually a favorite epitaph of of the great writer Henry James as well. Um uh but uh, uh, it, it describes how this young woman who was 16 years old um, died in a kind of uh, a disastrous accident where 
she was on a horseback ride near the Tiber River, and uh, um, uh, her horse ended up getting swept into the, the current, and she drowned. Um, and her mother writes this epitaph for her and also mentions the fact that her father was also lost in, in a, a tragic manner. Um, and so you can just feel the kind of grief pulsing through this, this, uh, this epitaph. And it ends, it has this kind of mysterious line at the end where um, uh, 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 Felita Bathurst, the mother of Rosa Bathurst, says, you know, if you are young and beautiful, build not thereon. Um, and you can just feel the grief of that. But also I was really fascinated by this idea of, you know, being told that life is so unstable that we have to be very careful about what we decide to build on. And and that question of, well, what should we build a life on? I found to be very profound. Um, but in any case, I just fell in love with the epitaph. And so I started to kind of just do some historical digging around to find out more about the Bathurst, more about Rosa Bathurst, more about her father, uh, Benjamin Bathurst, um, uh, more about Felita. And you could kind of dig up some stuff uh, uh, about them. And, you know, as things unfolded, as the story just got more and more interesting. And so I was both interested in the history of this thing and also interested in, like I said, this big philosophical question the epitaph raised, like, what should we build our life on? Which I feel like almost everyone asks when they're walking around a cemetery. You know, you sort of start to wonder about, you know, what kind of life do I want to lead? What kind of memory do I want to, to leave behind? What kind of adventure do I want to be most known for? And so I just got super interested in the, the twin things of finding out the history and thinking about the philosophy of, of what's raised there. And so as I wrote more and more about it, I, um, I was like, I, I want to keep doing this with Rome. But I thought that what a great way to start the book, both because it, it sparked my imagination, but also because it raises this profound question of what should we build our lives on? A question that we can feel personally, but also in a way, when you think of Rome, you're like, here's a, a city that's built itself again and again on various sorts of things. Yeah, that's um, exactly, that's exactly what I thought you were doing. By the time I got to the later chapters, I thought how clever it was, Bill not thereon. Uh, mm -hmm. There's, there is something, there's something stoic about it. And as, as we will see, I mean, that one of the great philosophical traditions of Rome is mm -hmm. this, the stoicism, Epicureanism uh, debate. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also, of course, the entire fact that Rome is city, a build on a city, build on a city, build on a city. You're right. always building on something. And as we'll see in the, in, in one of my favorite chapters is, is the multi-layeredness of time mm -hmm. and the, what, what things are found beneath other things. Um, so all those things are alluded to in that first chapter. So it's a beautiful beginning of this th of, of threads, multi-thread, multi there are multiple golden threads that then fan out from that first chapter. Yeah, thank you. That's 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 nicely said, and I do think that describes pretty well what I was 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 hoping for. Um, I mean, the book is it it. it you know the the kind of the way the book unfolds, it, as you said, is kind of idiosyncratic. I, on the one hand, I do want it to have a bit of a of a chronological unfolding, but at the same time, I kind of want to scramble that chronology because the city of Rome scrambles it almost wherever you are in Rome is a mishmash yeah. of various time periods all coming at you at once. Yes, um, 
and and so it's not as simple as just like well let's go to the ancient part let's go to the medieval part let's go to the renaissance part let's go to the baroque part no all those things are coming at you simultaneously in in most of the places of rome so i wanted some of that feel in the book at the same time i wanted this idea of of sort of you know starting at the origins of rome and 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 moving through the ancient period into the medieval period you know to the renaissance and the baroque um, so, but like I said, it's, it's trying to kind of do those things simultaneously just as the city of Rome. Itself well, I mean, you, you don't really do that because the, like the second chapter is really about Caravaggio and mannerism. So you've gone back from like 18, the 19th right. century to the 17th. So, so there is, there is, um, there's a certain way in which we're looking, we're flipping, taking a telescope, moving in and out, but also flipping it over to look, you know, so we're looking through a microscope as well, and the, that, which is the dizzying feeling that you get when you're in a place like Rome. I first, you know, I experienced in Bath in England, where you can stand in one place, look at the, look down into the Roman baths, look behind you and look at a late Gothic, you know, abbey church, mm-hmm. then look up the hill to 19th century neoclassical repurposing of ideas that you find about the Roman path, which they didn't know about. But still, I mean, all these things. But Rome is like that, only much, 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 much more so. So you always feel like you're falling down a well of time or or falling up. Right. And uh, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And so like my first kind of section, which I call Build Not Thereon, it starts with the story of of, of, uh, a young woman in the early 19th century it goes to Caravaggio, you know, uh, painting late in his life in the early 1600s, you know, and then it goes to uh, a Bernini sculpture uh, of, of Aeneas um, uh, made also in the mid 1600s. And so in that sense, it's kind of beginning sort of late in Rome's history. But at the same time, someone like Caravaggio is doing a painting of David with the head of Goliath, which harkens back to the earliest kind of Judeo-Christian mm-hmm parts of, of of deep Roman history. And then, you know, uh, Bernini is doing a sculpture of Aeneas, the kind of mythical founder of Rome itself. So that question of, hey, where do I build? Mm-hmm. And Aeneas going on a journey that then becomes where, you know, Rome eventually is built. Um, uh, so that's my kind of sense of the deep history that even though we're far on in Roman history in one sense, it's it's always kind of going back to those those very early origins of the city itself. Well, let's let's talk about uh, Caravaggio's briefly about the the head of of Goli- uh, David with the head of Goliath. Uh, Caravaggio, as you say in the book, is uh, like a lot of Romans. He came from somewhere else. Rome, mm-hmm. in that way, is the New York of uh, of Italy. Uh, yeah. They were Romans born in the wrong place, so they migrate to. You know, just as New Yorkers are filled with Iowans who were born New Yorkers in Iowa. Uh, and are more New Yorker than anyone born in Manhattan. Uh, Likewise, Rome is full of Romans like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's another kind of theme throughout the book, but certainly the first part too, is is that, you know, Rome is not a place of native Romans, so to speak. It's even from the very beginnings, it's been a place of outsiders coming Mm -hmm. to the city, starting with the war refugee Aeneas. But yeah, so Caravaggio... Uh, uh, comes to Rome, but but becomes just an important player almost immediately. His art is just so so powerful. But of course, he's a really turbulent character, as is pretty well known about him. Uh, and he eventually murders a man, maybe over a stupid tennis match, and um, 
uh, even with all of his powerful friends. He has to flee Rome. Um, uh, it's He's guilty of a capital offense, and he goes on kind of an interesting journey that takes him to different places where he continues to get in trouble in various ways, gets in various scrapes. and it, But he's wanting to get back to Rome, and, it, and he makes this incredible painting, uh, David with the head of Goliath, uh, that isn't that now is in the Galleria Borghese, and um, and he he sends it to Scipio uh, Scipione Borghese, who is the nephew of the Pope at the time, presumably because he wants to get a papal pardon uh, for his crime, and he sends this painting as a kind of entreaty, and it's such a, a, a curious thing to be sending uh, this painting. Uh, one of the things that's worth saying is is that beheading was one of the punishments for capital crimes in the papal states at the time. Um, so he sends a painting of David holding the hacked off head of Goliath um, uh, 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 in this hopes of getting a, a, a pardon. And it turns out that the, the head of Goliath is a self-portrait of Caravaggio himself. Um, uh, so it's it's a curious, almost symbolic act of of punishing himself, mm -hmm. and yet at the same time, you know, hoping for the, at least the temporal forgiveness of the Pope. Um, uh, some people have even interpreted the very compassionate look of David down at the head of Goliath as as showing kind of Christ's um, uh, 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 sorrow and sympathy for sinners perhaps sinners who, who will never be saved. Um, uh, but it's, it's just an incredible painting that, that, that mixes um, uh, uh, sexuality and violence and, and a sense of youth and age and, and, and how things unfold um, that really, to me, evokes the tragedy that I think is at the heart of really all human life and certainly um, uh, at the origins of, 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 of Rome itself. And it's... Um the the painting itself is david is uh, i should say caravaggio is also david mm -hmm. yeah uh, i mean talk about the divided self i mean here we have a guy mm -hmm. who sounds like in the modern age he'd be uh, well it's like he is like a basically a biker gang sort of sort of member you yeah, know right. he's, a, he's a duelist a brawler he kills people over stupid crap and yeah. he's also one of the most sensitive painters mm -hmm. who ever lived mm-hmm um, yeah. And so we have something youthful and fresh and gentle about him, who also cut, like David, but David also cuts people's heads off after right. he's after he's killed them with a rock. Right. Um, and of course, Caravaggio is also Goliath. Mm -hmm. um, so he's captured the, the division of his personality, which is also ours. Yeah. If, if we care yeah. to, if we care to think about it. Um, and, uh, and that's such, it is, I'm so glad. I don't think I, I hadn't seen that painting since probably art history, my sophomore year. Mm -hmm. So now I really have to, I'm going to have to spend some time looking at it. I have to go, and then, uh, full disclosure, I've never been to Rome. This book makes me want to go to Rome like now. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it, uh, seeing that in, in, in the, in my flesh. Yeah, it and it's it's really worth seeing in the flesh. Um, it's 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 amazing. But you're you're exactly right that the painting shows that division that's in human nature itself, and and that's one of the things that to me is so 
um, powerful about Caravaggio's artwork is that, I mean, he himself was a victim of violence. He he was gotten a lot of fights where he was beaten quite badly. Um, he also was, of course, an inflictor of violence um, uh, on others. And, you know, and, and when you're thinking about civilization, that's what you're having to deal with is the fact that human nature is quite violent and, and does any number of brutal things. At the same time, human nature also suffers that same brutality. And what makes Caravaggio so profound is, is that he doesn't really moralize a whole lot, or at least not in a, in a, in a simple way, about, about this stuff. He doesn't portray the the act of violence as some glory glorious thing you know we have a lot of movies nowadays that where violence is is sort of glorified um uh, and the romans have always, has, has stylized we, we, we'll, we'll be getting to that but but he doesn't but he doesn't necessarily make it all about like oh the the the, the inflictor of violence is evil and terrible either he just shows you the kind of unvarnished truth of the situation that these things are both real and happen and it's his kind of strength as an artist to just portray the the the, the reality of it and sort of just say you, you guys make what you want of it but this is this is who we are <laughs> speaking of moralizing but not simple moralizing <laughs> uh we get to cicero Mm-hmm. Uh, and the forum. So uh, I, I could spend, I, I've never, we never talked about Cicero. I've never talked mm-hmm. about Cicero with anybody. So I could probably spend the, uh, the conversation just asking you questions about it. Uh, but um, when you go to the forum, uh, why do you think of Cicero rather than say Mark Antony or any number of, of, of or, or Caesar himself or any number of people? Well, first of all, I've ever since I first started reading Cicero, and I didn't read him until graduate school, despite the fact that I majored in philosophy as an undergraduate. Um, I, I was just really fascinated by him, and, and really grew to to love him as a figure um, uh, because he is, um, you know, he blends so much stuff in in a in a really humane way. Um, or at least that's how that's how he comes across to me. I mean, um, uh, we know him in part as a great philosopher who uh, is is one of the vehicles through which Western civilization comes to know Greek philosophy, but also comes to just think about political philosophy. That's interesting because I, I don't think people know him as a philosopher anymore. I mean, I think educated philosophers do. You do, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. educated listeners to this podcast will think of him as a lawyer, a character yeah. in, in Stephen, with Stephen Naylor novels. Um, but yeah. but he, a lawyer, an advocate, a politician, kind of, you know, devious, probably a little, I mean, this is, there's a new portrait of Cicero that's emerged. But the sure. full, the, you're his, right, you're right. And I say, I suppose I was misspeaking when I said we, or at least I, yeah. I was meaning we in a very broad sense, meaning people basically ever since Cicero. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, if you're if you go back to the Enlightenment, if you go back to the early modern period, that's how people learned language and philosophy was by reading Cicero. Sure. Um, but of course, everyone has also always known him as a great rhetorician, one of the greatest rhetoricians, and for his his great speeches that that are still studied uh, uh, insofar as people bother to study that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and of course, he's a great kind of political figure, and people still to this day debate, you know, the wisdom of his um, uh, of his political decisions, uh, and 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 he, you know, he's playing a kind of crucial role in one of the most pivotal 
periods in Roman history and all Western history, uh, as you know, as Julius Caesar rises to power and is 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 executed. Um, but you know, and uh, uh, so when I think of uh, I think of Cicero in the Forum in part because you know when you think of the Forum is the quintessential kind of public space. I mean, it was uh, uh, the space where. That the Rome kind of defined for us, where where we can rise from our private and even social selves into a, a, a public life, um, uh, where we present ourselves in public, and still to this day, you go to to Rome and there's some of this going on in piazzas where, you know, people kind of strut their stuff and look good, um, uh, but but beyond you know just the physical presentation of the self in public, there is. You know the political presentation of the self in public, and so this idea of you know making these great speeches is kind of the high point of that. Um, uh, and so, to me, when I think of what's the finest purpose of the forum, um, I think of someone like Cicero, who brought his philosophical education to bear on his political life and 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 the life of his fellow human beings. Um, he believed that, that that was, in a way, the point of life. Uh, uh, the title of my Cicero chapter is Be Not for Yourself Alone, uh, which comes from a line in Cicero um, where he says, we should be for others. You know, we're here to serve serve uh, 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 other people. And he puts relationships at really the center of his philosophy. And so part of what a good public life is about is trying to enhance, you know, those relationships in that human life. And so I think of him as being, like I said, the kind of ideal uh, uh, person there. Of course, there are many figures associated with the forum, but um, but the other reason why I think of Cicero and the forum is that when we go to the forum, the forum is in ruins. And in a way, Cicero was wrestling with this this question. I mean, he, he, he wasn't dealing with the physical ruins of the forum per se, but he felt as if the purpose of the forum was falling into ruin in front of his eyes. He felt as if is if it was moving from this kind of theater of great eloquence to what he regarded as a kind of circus of manipulative blather where where uh, 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 people were able to manipulate the masses with with kind of uh, um, uh, the, the lowest means possible and 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 he thought if we lose this eloquence uh, and we lose you know using language in ways that matter and that are informed by philosophy, then we will have really lost what you know Rome is all about. So he's he's worried that 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 you know the 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 the, the forum is falling into ruins in in the most important way. One of Cicero's great students uh, is Augustine of Hippo. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, he he talks about the revelation that Cicero's Hortensius was to him, a right. work that is now completely lost. And mm -hmm. you have a very interesting chapter. If we move uh, physically, if we move out of the forum a little bit to the, what, to the east, we yeah. down that valley, we're going to mm -hmm. eventually end up in the sort of the area that be, was then transformed by Vespasian uh, uh, mm -hmm. with the Colosseum. Right. So here we have a contrast between Cicero's student, by some centuries, Augustine, and Seneca, who was yeah. the tutor of the guy whose land was appropriated by Vespasian to build the Colosseum. Um, right. I guess for the last 20, 25 years, probably the last big, what, sword and toga, sandals and toga, uh, sword and sandals, was Gladiator. 
Right, yeah. Um, that's probably where most uh, film going film watchers get their idea of Rome is from Gladiator. Mm -hmm. So the Colosseum is central, I think, to the modern appreciation of what Rome is. So I, I wanted to I wanted to be sure to talk about Seneca and Augustine looking at the Colosseum. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the Colosseum captures our imaginations, particularly now, and maybe Gladiator is part of that. Um, and still people, you know, associate Rome very deeply with the Colosseum. And and one of the things, I mean, this too is part of how I was thinking about the book as a whole, was that, you know, when people go to the Colosseum, I think they do ask philosophical questions, even if they don't really pursue them. It's hard not to go to the Colosseum and be struck by how similar it is to modern stadiums. And it's hard not to start asking questions like, why did people kill people for sport? And, and what does this tell us about human nature that this is such a long-standing thing when we, you know, we really sink our teeth into violent spectacle? It, it's um, also interesting to think about, why did we ever stop? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, because it went on for a long time, this right. kill, humans killing humans. Um, exactly. And, yeah. and so... And, and, and so I thought, well, yeah, so this is an occasion for doing philosophy. And it's also a, an occasion to look at the history of philosophy because philosophers like Seneca and Augustine wondered essentially the exact same questions about the Colosseum. Well, Seneca, the Colosseum hadn't quite been built by the time of Seneca, but as you mentioned, it was about to be built and he very much knew about the games that went on in places like the Colosseum. Um, and, and so, you know, Seneca's wondering similar things about, well, what... What does this tell us? And and he has really, I think, perceptive things to say about the power of of crowds to 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 um, uh, bring out a real tyrannical aspect of who we are. Mm -hmm. That when we get in big crowds, it's like certain aspects of our our personality are unleashed, and we become like tyrants with the capacity to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down, uh, 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 and and even to make or break human life. Um, and I think some of those lessons are still relevant to this day for us when we're thinking about, you know, uh, uh, social media or rallies or the kind of places where we can kind of clump together and, and feel a sort of power coursing through us to, to make or break people, uh, even if it's not life life and death in, a, in, 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 in that literal sense. Um, this, is, this is Augustine's precise point when he, in the Confessions. He talks about his friend Olypius. Who yeah, is dragged to the games against his will, and then yeah. is converted. Yeah, it's such a wonderful story that I think we can all kind of relate to. Alepius is a kind of he's he's probably like Augustine, someone who's read the Hortensius of Cicero and wants to be you know kind of above these these kind of lowly uh, uh, entertainments like that go on at the Colosseum. But his friends are like, oh, come on, like, let's go. You'll like it. And he's like, I'll go, but I'm not going to watch, you know, and he he insists on closing his eyes, you know, and he's like, I'm not going to watch. But, but right at the moment when someone's going to be dealt a death blow, the crowd's going wild and he can't help but open his eyes. And then he just falls in love with, with it. And pretty soon he's dragging people there to see it. He becomes addicted to this spectacle almost immediately. Uh, it's so powerful and overwhelming and alluring. And Augustine, I think, starts to reflect on this as an example of human sinfulness and how weak, in some sense, humans are. Even when we know the good uh, uh, and are striving to live by it, no, give us sex or violence. Augustine suffered more from the sex issue, Alepius from the violence issue. 
um, uh, and 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 we will fall prey um, uh, to it. The only, you know, the grace of God uh, opening ourselves up to that is, you know, is, is going to be able to transform us. But was, would Seneca be against attending the games? I mean, is, would would he would he feel that um, you shouldn't expose? You? Is it more the death? It's not the death. It's the mm-hmm. being exposed to the crowd and having your soul your soul transformed by the passions of others. I think that is it. I mean, I think um, uh, I, I think you know the the Stoic view. Seneca is a kind of Stoic. Um, I think the Stoic view was one that was somewhat tolerant, so to speak, of the Colosseum. And that part of human nature saying, look, human beings do this kind of stuff and you got to kind of learn to live with it. Um, uh, however, you yourself, as much as you can, should try to, to like you say, free yourself from uh, uh, the kind of debilitating passions that are unleashed by, by the Colosseum. So stay away from those crowds which can weaken you. Um, uh, insofar as you are there, you would take a real strong stoic personality to endure. So, you know, it's, it's, it's less for Seneca about like, this is wrong to be killing people and more, he, he says, you know, what have we done to deserve the fate of, 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 of taking pleasure in this? Because this is, this is a diminution of who we are as human beings. Um, uh, I think the, the Christian ethic that we see in someone like Augustine ha- has a more radically transformative possibility to start to identify with the with the the, the victims of violence. Um, part of the beauty and power of early Christianity in particular was its outreach to slaves, to uh, 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 the abused, to, to women, um, to the victims of the kind of systematic violence that was just baked into the cake of, of the Roman Empire. Yeah, it was, we could, uh, uh, in the show notes, I'll, I'll link to Tom Holland's, my conversation, Tom Holland about his book, Dominion. This is the, the sort of quietism of Stoicism, let's call it yeah. that way, with Augustine, who seems kind of Stoic, but he's, mm-hmm. but he's actually a, a radical reformer uh, mm-hmm. because of a very different view, view of the human. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that that's, I think that's true. I, I, though I will say, I mean, I will stand up a bit for the Stoics here, uh, because while there is a, a sort of quietism we can associate with them, that is say they're not likely to make radical transformations, they were certainly not opposed to, and, and, and their lives showed this very much, trying to make incremental betterments to, to human life. Um, uh, uh, you know, I think it's a kind of misconception of Stoicism that you just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's just the way it is, that that in fact, the Stoics say, well, yeah, th- there are things that cannot be changed, but we also do have powers that we can use to, to try to make things as, as good as possible. So, but but ultimately for the Stoic, it's, it's, it's not that the change happens, that's not the fundamental good, it's that you you perform virtuously in relationship to these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone like a Marcus Aurelius, a great emperor who was also a Stoic, I mean, he's constantly engaged in political activities, wars. Um, uh, in fact, he tried to reform some of the games even uh, to make them a little less violent. Um, so he's doing all that. But at some fundamental level, he realizes, even as emperor of Rome, I can't decide who wins a war I can't determine, you know, how human nature is going to end up in the end. I can't, for instance, determine if a plague is going to hit Rome. But I can, um, you know, uh, as emperor, do what I can to 
behave and perform well in relationship when a war happens or a plague hits, um, etc. So I don't think of it as quietist, but but it, it certainly was not as radically reforming as as mm-hmm. as what early Christianity was. We, uh, I'm I neglected. Uh, there are a lot of chapters I wish we had talked mm-hmm. about. Uh, we, uh, but I, here's one question I have to ask you, Lowell, uh, is what's the difference between, say, a Lucretius as an Epicurean and mm-hmm. Seneca as a, you said, as a Stoic? What, so mm-hmm. uh, just could you explain to the, the historian what's the difference between Epicureanism and Stoicism? Yeah, I mean, so th- they they really were presented as kind of two uh, not, almost opposite philosophies, though really I think that they share a whole lot. They, they, they were both deeply uh, uh, concerned with reflecting on the fact of our mortality and then living a good life in relationship to that reflection. So they both have this basic structure of reflect on death and then try to to live a good life. The you know the famous expression of of, of a kind of semi Epicurean poet Horace is you know carpe diem. Mm-hmm. People know any lines of Latin poetry, it's probably that one, which I translate as kind of reap the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the the differences um, uh, in the ancient world, one of the big differences that was was often regarded was that the that the Stoics believed in a kind of um, divinely ordered universe, that that the universe was God, essentially, uh, um, and that the universe was one big rational mind of God. And so the great goal was to use our little bit of rationality, a little spark of divinity in each of us, to reconcile with this great uh, overall uh, um, rationality. And part of how the Stoics believed in doing this was through uh, acting virtuously. So virtuous, virtuosity means, in some sense, accepting the world as as it as it is. But it also means doing your part as best as you can. If you've been given the role of father, to play the role of father as best as you can. If you've been given the role of emperor, play the role of emperor as best as you can. If you've been uh, given the role of soldier, play the role of soldier as best as you can. So that virtue is you're you're taking your part in the great order, and uh, the Epicureans tended to believe that there was not a great rational order that the that the world was the result of the kind of the the slightly chaotic play of atoms, mm-hmm. um, and uh, 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 and so, you know, they, th- their goal was to live well, given the kind of structure, the atomic structure that we ourselves have been given. Um, uh, and so the Epicureans on the whole were less, so, if, so one big difference was the Stoics had no problem with entering into public life uh, to try to perform virtuously in public life. The Epicureans tended to withdraw from public life, seeing it as something that's really just going to upset our tranquility. So uh, they were more inclined to withdraw to the to the Epicurean garden. It was a literal garden for Epicurus, the founder of the movement in Greece, um, or even just insofar as you can withdraw into yourself, into your own kind of private garden and live a good life in relationship to those things. It was a much gentler kind of philosophy. The Stoics, like I said, had no problem with being a soldier mm-hmm. or an emperor. The Epicureans see war as, as a, a, a horrible uh, a, you know, disaster of, of, of human nature that, that if we can just cultivate 
you know the right kinds of desires in us we we went we went engage in the, that kind of uh, so this uh, is i i i really did misspoke stoics are uh, epicureans are much more quietist in that sense yeah. than 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 stoics yeah though uh, again in, in a weird way they're almost so quietist they they might be a lot more transformative <laughs> um oh. Uh, I mean, by unplugging from society and cultivating a totally different form of life, um, in this sense, they're almost like, you know, the Amish or something, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, they're not engaged in political life in, in the way we normally think, or even social life as we normally think, but they're kind of offering a radical alternative. So they're a, a to, powerful sign of contradiction right. to the spirit of the age, which, you right. know, uh, people are attracted to, repelled by, but they, they pay attention. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Epicureans are, uh, I mean, one of their, to me, one of their most insightful things is their analysis of human desire. And, and, and so the Epicureans, you know, believe that, that we had what were sometimes called natural necessary desires. These are the kind of basic things that we crave and that when we get, they fully satisfy us. Like a, a good example is I'm thirsty and I drink water and I feel completely satisfied. Or another big one for the Epicureans was friendship. I long to have interactions with other people, and then I'm with my friend, and I feel completely satisfied by that. But they thought that our these kinds of basic desires start to get overgrown. We start to want more, 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 you know, um, um, more and more food, more and more drink, bigger and bigger houses, more and more social connections, uh, and that eventually leads us to want money and power and yeah. these things. And they think that this actually is the wrong strategy for getting happiness because these things never really give us that complete feeling of satisfaction. We never have that ah experience it's that we get like when we a, drink a glass of water. Like building an entire philosophy on the transition from what in the Republic, from the city, the first city to the second city, because right. the, people yeah. desire relishes. Uh, as right. Adamanta says, and they, they need their little luxuries. They can't live so simply, Socrates. No, that's okay. exactly yeah. right. I mean, all this stuff goes back to the the, the Republic. Yeah, yeah. But, but, the, but the Epicureans, I mean, you know, so this becomes the question is they understood that that is part of the human soul to want more and more and more, to want those relishes, those luxuries. But they what they're trying to do in some sense is to divert us back, to, to, to revert us back to that those simple desires that are the ones that are truly enriching for us. Um, so rather than build a whole ideal republic, they're in a sense stepping out of the political back to um, uh, uh, a more basic form of human nature. Well, let's talk about uh, my probably my favorite chapter. We've alluded to it already, which is the mysteries of San Clemente. What yeah. lies beneath the floor of the church of San Clemente? I suspect also you, your marriage li, li, lay beneath the floor. Like <laughs> That's Clemente, true. Reading be, between the lines. It's like a historian. I'm, I'm inter, interlocking the various uh, little reading between the interlinear reading that I was doing. Yeah. Uh, I figured that one out. Uh, but there's, uh, it's that this is that dizzying sort of well of time that you find in Rome is best expressed in San Clemente. Yeah, it's such a great site. Um, it's becoming a more popular site, which in a way is good, in a way is kind of too bad. But I mean, it, it's 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 well worth one's time if one goes to Rome. It, it's a spot that I would I would I would definitely uh, encourage people to see. And and so the kind of the story goes is that you have this Basilica of San Clemente. And in the in the eighteen mid mid eighteen hundreds eighteen forties uh, and fifties, 
this uh, 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 Dominican abbot, uh, Joseph Maluli, it's run by Irish Dominicans, the church, and he, he starts to, to un realize that there was probably a previous Basilica of San Clemente that's not the one that he's currently in, and it's unclear where it is, and he starts to suspect, based on his readings and research, that it's actually below his feet. And so they start to dig out um, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, underpinnings of the church, and sure enough, they find an entire basilica under the Basilica of San Clemente with uh, incredible frescoes still on the walls, which you can now go down and see. But what's What's even more astonishing is as they're digging, they find a staircase going down. So and they let, realize let, that... Let me keep this straight. <laughs> Maluli in the 1840s, uh, how old was the basilica in which he was, of which he, over which he presided? So the, the upper basilica, which yeah. we can still visit to this day, was made around 1100. Okay, and which is not new. Not and then, new. <laughs> and then and beneath it was a very... Uh, sort of 300s basilica, I guess? Yeah, right. Made probably sometime in the late 4th century, the, okay. the late 300s or maybe early 5th. I don't know that it's 100% clear there. but um, And then, like I said, there's a stairway going down from that. They find that that basilica had been built atop a, 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 probably a Republican-era complex. Um, okay. uh, so now we're going back you know, to around well it, it it might be early imperial or late republican but you know either 100 AD or 100 BC somewhere in that time frame this big complex and in this roman complex there is a temple devoted to the mystery cult devoted to mithras um which, so which is Mithraism which comes relatively the, late to the i mean that's a post 100 uh, AD yes, exactly. So, I mean, the, the the complex was built probably like the Republican era, but of course was used for mm -hmm. for much, you know, going into the well, three hundreds in all likelihood, mm -hmm. it was being used all the way up to there. And Mithraism, Mithraeum, yeah. So there was a Mithraeum there, and and Mithraism was a kind of, you know, part of the religious smorgasbord of of Roman religion in the first uh, uh, few centuries of. Uh, um, of our, uh, uh, you know, zero to about 400 AD, and was a kind of competitor with Christianity, particularly in the 300s, as Christianity is legalized and is becoming, you know, uh, uh, the official religion of Rome. You still have these kinds of Mithraic uh, 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 mystery cults happening. And Mithraic is kind of man uh, Manichaean esque, a little yeah, it is. light and dark, death of a bull, something, eternal sun. I can't remember. Very popular among soldiers. And yes. scene. That's what I got. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, and 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 you know, it's widely believed that that the the birthday of Mithras, the central figure of the cult, was December twenty fifth. Um, that uh, you know, the central seat. We don't have much. We have almost zero literary evidence about Mithraism. Mm -hmm. We have some about mystery cults, of which it was one, but. Um, uh, 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 we don't know much about what it was other than the archaeological evidence. And so there's almost always a scene of what's called the Tauroctony of Mithras slaying a bull uh, as a dog and a scorpion and a snake are also attacking the bull. Um, Mithras is also probably associated with Sol, S-O-L, the sun, a sun god. 
Um, so we have kind of a divine figure and a son, maybe roughly like God the Father and God the Son in Christianity. Um, uh, so and there, there could be a, I mean, this is, there could be even, it could be a derivative of Christianity by that time, given how late, late rel, relatively later it is. I mean, it's, it could it's hard. It could be it's a Zoroastrian Christian mashup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're happening basically at the same time, so they both seem to be drawing on mm-hmm. each other, or at least it's conceivable that the influence is going back and forth between them. In almost all the mystery cults, and this goes all the way back to ancient Greece, so Mithraism is a later one, but but in all the mystery cults, there seems to be a dying god at the center of the of the mystery um, itself. Um, uh, so if we have someone like Dionysus. You know he's he's the god of wine, and of course, w- the way wine is made is you know these grapes grow, and then we take them and brutally destroy them and mash them up, but then they're resurrected in glory as wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, to be part of that mystery, you may be drinking wine. It's like you're drinking the 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 blood and body of the god mm-hmm. uh, and taking it into yourself, and perhaps thereby achieving some kind of immortality. And Mithra Mithraism probably also had a kind of sacred meal at its center. And of course, in Christianity, there is also a, a dying God at its center, and and one of the central rites is is eating the the, the blood and body associated with Jesus. Um, so all that stuff, you know, is come happening in a some kind of religious imaginary. Uh, it's hard to tell what's influencing what. Um, I think there are profound differences between Christianity and Mithraism, which you, are which you talk about, and those are interesting. It's kind of related to San Clemente, right? Um, yeah. th- that some mystery cults are more mysterious than others. <laughs> right, <laughs> indeed. And Christianity, in some sense, becomes a kind of open mystery meant to proclaim the good news far and wide to all peoples, whereas these mystery cults were real kind of private social clubs, essentially, um, uh, so they were cults. I don't mean the word cult in a necessarily a negative sense, um, uh, but but just the idea that they were, you know, they weren't meant to be the full religious kind of structure of Rome, but they were an important kind of central part of, of that structure. Um, uh, whereas Christianity kind of takes over the whole shebang of the, 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 the religion and elevates this mystery in in an important way um, within it. But there are a lot of interesting similarities and differences, but what makes the site San Clemente just so profound is that you have this religious experience unfolding over centuries, and you can actually walk down into the depths of that uh, religious experience. And in fact, the lowest level of San Clemente, where the Mithraeum is, may not be the lowest level either. You can, if you explore around, you can hear a fountain underneath <laughs> even these things. So you can imagine perhaps an earlier site uh, in the very earliest days of Rome. And so here, you know, Rome has just been building on top of itself. Um, uh, and and so to me, it's just a great site to think a little bit about um you know, some profound questions of religion, you know, mm-hmm. how has religious experience stayed the same? How has it changed? Um, you know, uh, 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 why are these sites built atop each other? I mean, actually, we have a better sense of why the 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 first basilica to San Clemente was built atop the Mithraeum, because, you know, as Christianity was really triumphing uh, by 400, 
um, you know, it, 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 it was just sort of rebuilding right on top of these old sites that they more or less wanted to get rid of and replace with Christian sites. Why the second Christian basilica was built atop the first Christian basilica is a more mysterious question itself. But anyway, it's just a great site and you get to feel kind of like Indiana Jones going down into the heart of some deep, dark mysteries by just, you know, you just got to pay a small fee and you can descend the steps into the depths of history. I think it showed up in a Percy Jackson novel too, or did it? I think it did. Yeah, um, the we're running out of time, but so and I wanted to before we conclude, um, I wanted to get at how the genesis of this book, which um, which I guess is related to is certainly related to your work at Kirkwood Community College. Mm-hmm. You've been taking groups of what people still insist on calling non-traditional students, although as <laughs> yeah. we were joking before we began recording, the majority of uh, under people getting undergraduate degrees are now non-traditional students. Right. Uh, they're not they're not 18 to 22 year olds in a campus dormitory environment. The majority of them are people who are, are not that. So you're taking sort of uh, traditional, so maybe you should start calling 18 to 22 yeah. year olds non-traditional. Uh, you're taking older people over to Rome. Uh, what's that like? How do you arrange it? Do you have pro tips for someone who wants to take a, a trip to Rome? Well, yeah, I suppose I could say a lot about that. But but yeah, first of all, I'll just say quickly, you know, my work with so-called non-traditional students, the real, becoming increasingly the traditional students, has been just wonderful. I mean, they they bring so much to the table. They bring so much more life experience and 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 to the questions of philosophy. You know, they they're they're raising them in ways that that I think are are fundamental to what philosophy is really about. Um, you know, they they're often dealing with say someone they know who's dying or 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 they're trying to figure out how to refashion their lives. And so they're like, I hear these philosophers have something to say. Well, bring it on. Let's 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 think about this and so i love what they bring to that and of course you know so you know going to rome is a great experience for for really anyone but i think particularly when you have some of those questions and sometimes you have a kind of deeper sense in, of history and a more of a desire to dive into history as you get a little older uh, 18 year olds you know sometimes are most attracted by just you know hitting the clubs and bars um but but you know when you're in your late 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, you know, the idea of exploring the sites is really great. I mean, one of the things that I really try to do is, in terms of pro tips is, you know, for students at least, I try to front load before we go to the to Rome itself as much of the basics as possible. For instance, I think mastering a timeline in advance is incredibly useful because you just Rome, like I said, hits you all at once with, with, with histories that have been mishmashed together. And so to have some timeline to help you, you know, unpack some of them is really helpful. Um, uh, I, I also encourage students to have a project that they formulate and develop um, that kind of gets them to relate to Rome in a more personal way. Maybe that's a photographic series or a personal essay or something like that. Uh, anything that helps them to connect their personal aptitudes to the city in a kind of more transformative way. But I mean, another just tip that I would give to people is there are a lot of great sites in Rome that aren't overrun. I mean, there are lots of places in Rome that are worth seeing like the Vatican or, you know, the Colosseum that are just packed with tourists, particularly in the summer. 
Um, but there are a lot of sites that aren't overrun. Um, the uh, Centrale Monte Martini is just a wonderful museum that's in an old, uh, um, uh, 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 one of the first uh, um, uh, power plants in Rome uh, with all these great, and that's now been outfitted with all these great ancient sculptures. Um, there's the uh, Villa Farnesina. We didn't get a chance to talk about that, but I have a chapter about that in my book. Mm -hmm. uh, San Clemente, uh, Ostia Antica, a city that's just a short little subway stop uh, down from Rome is, is, is just as good as Pompeii and almost no one goes to it. Uh, and you get to just wander around the ruins of an ancient city that's just fabulous. Uh, the Palazzo Altemps is a, is a great city right off the Piazza Navona, one of the most busy places in Rome, and yet no one seems to go to this, this really wonderful uh, uh, 16th or 15th century villa that's just full of, of some of the best art in the world. Um, uh, so anyway, there's lots of lots of just great sites that are that are worth seeing and 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 uh, that give you a, a, a rich sense of Rome, but that that, that aren't uh, that you know don't make you curse all the tourists around you. And we should say that at the end of each chapter has a list of these sites related to the sort of topic that's been mulled over. So yeah. it's a fantastic. I mean, you. We, we were supposed to talk about Raphael's School of Athens, which yeah. doesn't exactly hang in the most inconspicuous place in Rome. Right. And, and we've talked about the Colosseum, but yeah. there are tons of these out-of-the-way places mm -hmm. which, by the time you're done, you really want to go immediately to Rome and just mm -hmm. have an alternate sort of tour of Rome going through these places. Yeah, good. I'm glad that you, uh, you you appreciate that. And I hope that that does whet people's appetites and, and gives them some ideas if they do want to travel to the city. Let's finish by uh, you briefly uh, reproducing how, how the moving, the very moving conclusion on the, on the river of time, mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, we've talked about the, the well of time, but there's mm -hmm. also, of course, the river of time that flows through Rome mm -hmm. and out of Rome and that when you're there, you're participating in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I grew up in a small town in Iowa and it, it had been probably a boom town in the early 20th century. But by the time I was growing up there, it was essentially in ruins itself. The main street was almost all abandoned. And so I, I felt like I grew up in ruins, but there was a kind of just feeling like time happened a long time ago, and now I'm just living in the the post-apocalypse of, mm -hmm. of, of this small town. And I think part of why I loved Rome so much when I first went there was Rome, too, is a city of ruins, but it's also a city of constant rebirths, and it still feels so alive and vibrant, but not in a way that's forgotten its past, but in a way that keeps remixing its past or recalling its past. Or And so, uh, you know, to me, that's um, one of the great things about the city of Rome itself is that not only are there great sites there that are well worth seeing and reflecting on, the city itself seems worth just reflecting on as as, as, as an example of, of what it means to keep alive and yet nonetheless to have to deal with with you know the decline and fall of things over and over again uh and 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 so to me it raises some of the most profound philosophical questions of so what do we make of you know our lives our political commitments etc in light of 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 this river of time or of this kind of continual progression of 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 things rising and falling and and, and being reborn again my guest today has been scott samuelson he's author of rome as a guide to the good life 
a philosophical grand tour. Scott, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. No, I've loved, I've loved our conversation. Thank you for having me on. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 